Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. It's a pleasure to be here. Joining me from across this great nation of ours is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hello, Rich. Uh, pleasure to be back. And I've got a very important question for you today. Do you like getting caught in the rain? You know what? Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't. I'm not adverse to it. Let me just put it that way. Is it my choice all the time? No, but I don't mind it. Well, it's very important to figure that out because it is National Pina Colada Day. Ooh. So if you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. And I do like uh, accidentally not committing adultery. So that works out uh, as well. <laughs> uh, in completely unrelated news, let's jump into the IT news of the week. Cisco announced plans to acquire the Chinese optical DSP company Acacia Technologies for $2.6 billion. So not exactly an insubstantial amount of money. This comes at about a $70 uh, per share price, a substantial increase, 46% above what they were closing at. Um, and for a company that's only been public for a couple of years, started trading in the uh, kind of the mid 20s and 2016 you know this is a this is kind of a big move for them uh acacia does business with huawei zte and cisco itself but does this acquisition make more sense in terms of cisco finding ways to sell to hyperscalers tom and does it make sense to be buying a chinese company at this moment um, it does because I think that the value of getting Chinese uh, companies is probably as low as it's going to get for the foreseeable future. Uh, plus, we, we all know that that companies like Cisco and Apple and a bunch of other ones still have that that uh, secret container ship full of offshore cash that they need <laughs> to spend from places that are not here. Uh, but if you look back, Cisco actually did an optical networking acquisition, uh, I believe, around Cisco Live, so maybe about two months ago. Um, I think that this is a huge push for them to get a uh, uh, handle on the optical market. Um, where that's going to lead, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, it's definitely going to take them into direct com competition with Juniper. Um, optical is typically something you see a lot in the carrier space. So I'm wondering if this is Cisco trying to retrench themselves with their service provider customers. So, so really going for more of that network backhaul, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, um, evidently from all the press releases that I've been getting for the last six months, 5G is coming and it's huge and we need to be ready. Uh, maybe this is that step. <laughs> uh, one step we don't want to take is maybe installing Zoom on a Mac. Security researcher Jonathan Leachu posted a vulnerability in the Zoom and RingCentral video conferencing software for macOS that could allow a malicious website to turn on a user's camera without permission. Even if the Zoom app is uninstalled, by installing it initially, you put a local host web server that may remain behind and then reinstall the Zoom web server whenever you click on one of those join the uh, conference links, which can be embedded you know, basically anywhere that you would uh, just go into a website and all of a sudden you're, you're effectively clicking on that link. Leakshu has a patch for the vulnerability and instructions for disabling video by default as a mitigation factor. It's something you can just do in the settings. Probably a good idea. I believe I did that as soon as I installed Zoom because I hate the idea of just popping into a video conference. All of a sudden there's my smiling face. Uh, and he also showed as well how to shut down the server and remove the local host server uh, as well. Lichu uh, notified Zoom of the issue on March 26th. Zoom issued a partial quick fix on June 24th. But Lichu came up and said, I was able to, within an hour, figure out a way to mitigate that quick fix. This is not something that was a long-term way to mitigate this. I have since seen that, uh, uh, that Zoom has patched the vulnerability officially, but still, even with that 90-day window, not able to, uh, uh, to really effectively remediate it and wasn't really quick to respond here, Tom. Um, surprising to see a company that Zoom that, you know, we see a lot of enterprise customers prefer that uh, to something like WebEx or something like that, have this kind of blatant vulnerability. 
Well, it's funny because Zoom basically had become the default standard for anybody who is on the not WebEx train. Um, so Zoom was getting a lot of people really engaged. I believe they just recently went public. Um, and then this came out. And I mean, a lot of people were taking them to task for this. Jordan Martin, one of our friends over the Network Collective podcast, uh, was very public on Twitter saying, you don't make your researchers sign NDAs to to do this. I mean, this this is kind of a big deal. And they tried to soft sell it and whitewash a bunch of it um, uh, yesterday morning when the vulnerability was announced. And it failed spectacularly. People were basically like, why are you installing web servers on my computer? That's just dumb. Uh, the patch came out late last night, um, removed all traces of the web server, uh, fixed the video problems. Um, basically, somebody inside the company woke up and said, this ain't going to work. We can't <laughs> fix this with marketing. Um, but it actually raises a lot more questions for people, too, because it's there. Are, uh, Zoom's not the only one that does this. There are actually a couple of other video conferencing systems out there that install localhost web servers to allow this kind of um, behavior. And, of course, if you are a competitor to Zoom, your marketing Twitter feed is full of, <laughs> hey, we don't install web servers on your stuff today. Um, so I don't think we've seen the end of this. Um, there's still more shoes to drop in this case, I think. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting looking at his uh, uh, – Lee Chu had posted this uh, post on Medium kind of detailing, one, about disclosing it to Zoom and, two, the specifics of the vulnerability. And it seemed to me like re kind of reading between the lines here that initially how Zoom had implemented this, it sounded like it was like some engineer came up and said, hey, I have this cool hack that will enable us to just let some people send links and this is super easy. Um, mm -hmm. And without, you know, kind of consulting, you know, not having a, any kind of privacy regulation you have to worry about, there's no big deal. Um, but like some of the particulars were even just very weird where they were using image files to embed a lot of like the port information to do that in a way so that the operating system wouldn't detect that and wouldn't kind of ban that outright. Um, just some very weird hackery kind of stuff. Again, very convenient, not necessarily the greatest for uh, security. And a quick note on this, the, one of the reasons why they had to come up with this localhost web server patch around thing is because Apple changed the behavior of uh, Safari to not allow pass-through meetings. You actually had to click to allow the meeting. Um, that's Apple trying to keep us from getting infected by garbage. <laughs> and they basically had to come up with this convoluted way to get around it. So I'd say um, minus one to Zoom for the screw aroundery and uh, plus one to <laughs> Apple for trying to protect us from it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, speaking of uh, some uh, getting screwed around here, uh, the UK's Information Commissioner's Office announced plans to find British Airways £183 million for violating GDPR rules relating to a 2018 data breach uh, that affected over 380,000 people. I've seen it reported up to 500,000, but you know, comfortably in the six-digit range. The ICO's investigation found that poor security arrangements led to the breach of credit card information, names, addresses, travel booking details, and logins. GDPR allows for fines of up to 4% of a company's overall turnover. This fine equals about 1.5% of British Airways' 2017 revenue, so not exactly to the full extent, but substantial, and I think more than people are used to seeing. For some context, the fine for the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal uh, total was was 500,000 pounds. So definitely an order of magnitude greater there. Uh, British Airways has 28 days to appeal the ruling. Interesting that the fine is not really based on proved harm, right? It's not like, oh, all of these people lost money. There, there was the substantial harm here. Instead, more related to the idea that, you know, 
privacy is, you know, the, the companies have this responsibility to keep this information secure, whether it is used for ill or not. Um, sign that GDPR is working here, Tom? Uh, working is, well, <laughs> some of my security friends out there, if I say yes, the, the pitchforks and torches are going to come out. I think GDPR is a good step, and it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely doing one thing that was needed. It is putting teeth behind these regulations, because we've seen this in a lot of other places. Okay, guess what? We, we, we leaked some data. How much is a customer worth? Well, if you're putting it on your balance sheet, a customer is worth an inordinately high amount of money to inflate <laughs> your worth. Um, if you're getting fined based on how much they're worth, eh, what, two bucks, three bucks maybe? Um, you know, Instagram was basically bought for their customer base. So we can't even use that as a, a yardstick anymore because of, of really what that involved. But I think that what's important here, like you said, is that we're no longer pinning the fine based on how much harm did this cause? Because you're right, it could take years for us to figure out, you know, like if, if my social security number were to get violated, uh, I don't know, 10 years from now, how do you how do you quantify that? What you're doing instead is you're hitting them where it really hurts. You're finding them based on the revenue. You made money off of this. You screwed up and didn't use good security. We're finding you based on your revenue. And I think that ultimately that's how it's going to have to be going forward. You're going to have to hurt them. And honestly, in this case, um, I think in GDPR, uh, trying to make an example out of a company like British Airways, it looks like they went after the queen and they're not going to miss. <laughs> Uh, next up here, in, in, in more UK kerfuffle news, uh, Mozilla denied claims by the UK's Internet Services Providers Association, easy for me to say, that it plans to enable DNS over HTTPS by default in the Firefox browser in the UK. Uh, this system requ- uh, encrypts DNS requests so they cannot be intercepted by man-in-the-middle attacks, which can hijack some DNS, uh, which can hijack DNS to load malicious pages. Uh, DNS over HTTPS also speeds up browsing. As a side effect, though, uh, a lot of the the government mandated or voluntary uh, blocks that ISPs put in place kind of depend on being able to read DNS, and if they can't do that, then some of those kind of go kaput. Uh, the ISPA and the UK government have expressed concern that this would get around these blocks, uh, either for copyright infringement, put in place by child protection uh, agencies, or just at the request of parents for individual, you know, IP address household, at a household level, that kind of stuff for parental controls. Uh, Mozilla said in a statement that a more private DNS uh, would not prevent the use of filtering or parental controls in the UK, so kind of disputing uh, the, the kind of base of the findings there. Firefox has included support for DNS over HTTPS uh, since November 2018, so this is not new for the browser, but it's just not on by default. You can go in your settings and turn that on if you would like, as I'm sure many an enterprising teen in the UK has done. Uh, in this, uh, Is this just another example of privacy sometimes protecting terrible people here, Tom, and that's just inherent in any kind of security or privacy technology? Or is there some kind of deeper issue here that maybe I'm just not seeing? No, I think I know what this is about. Hold, hold on a second. <laughs> porn. It's porn. Um, this is all about the UK's um, desire to filter their internet um, mm. to protect people. But they've always been really shady about it. Like they've always been trying to stay one step ahead of the technologists who are trying to do things like DNS over HTTPS, um, which I think is a fascinatingly good idea in, in, in and of itself. Um, think of it like the VCR. Just because the VCR allows people to do bad things doesn't mean it wasn't a great invention. I mean, look at the world today. We wouldn't have the world we had. Netflix wouldn't exist without the VCR. Now, granted, <laughs> there were a few steps in the middle. But um, DNS over HTTPS is a good idea for all the reasons why we talk about that. You know, it prevents man-in-the-middle hijack attacks. It prevents redirection attacks. 
it just so happens that those are the ways that the UK is forcing people to go through this filtering software that they want to install to make us safer. Um, it couldn't also have anything to do with the fact that MI5 and MI6 are probably also collecting information about DNS requests to unmask terrorists and things like this. Anytime you you talk about DNS over HTTPS or end-to-end -end encryption in IM, you get back to the same argument, which is, well, it makes our jobs harder because we can't look at all of your messaging. I don't know. Actually try doing some police work and some detective work once in a while. It turns out that when you actually have to do your job and you can't just use technology to invade people's privacy to find out everything you really want, um, you actually build a sound case to for all of these things. So UK... <laughs> This is not about your desire to want to invade people's privacy. Get better and get over it. Yeah, anytime there is an argument to be made that, hey, this makes our job harder and that's why we shouldn't have more privacy, um, especially when there's tangible benefits, like you were saying, with man-in-the-middle attacks, that kind of stuff, that to me just seems like, okay, that's not... Okay, may, like maybe somewhat delay. Maybe do what Mozilla is doing. You're treading very lightly. I should be pointing out that they're being the most aggressive with HD, or with DNS over HTTPS. Google is really mm -hmm. slow rolled this. I'm pretty sure you have to like download developer builds or, or install an extension or something like that. Uh, we're not seeing it on IE, Safari, that kind of stuff. So, you know, Mozilla and, and for being the most aggressive is still being very conservative with how they're rolling out because I'm sure they're aware that this will cause uh, some kerfuffles as they're already seeing in the UK. But that being said, it's not like this is just being turned on for every browser overnight and everybody's being left flat footed. These organizations, these businesses, these, you know, whatever the government mandated blocks are, I, again, having making your job harder isn't a reason to be less secure or less private. Yeah. All right, next up here, Google announced uh, it will acquire the distributed storage startup Elastifile. If the deal passes regulatory muster, which I don't see how it would not, Elastifile will be rolled into Google Cloud File Store, according to CEO Thomas Curian. Elastifile has already uh, has already been offering native uh, storage on GCP, uh, so the integration probably should be fairly quick, I would imagine. Uh, we saw Elastifile at Storage Field Day a few years ago, and their solution allows for true distributed data at scale. They had all sorts, they were doing the math at this presentation, which is always my favorite uh, storage field day uh, kind of presentation, uh, with some smart automatic tiering between file and object storage. Nothing that I don't think we've seen other people at least claim to offer, but that was one of the things they were hanging their hats on. Uh, GCB has been on a little bit of an acquisition tear recently. Uh, Google deciding to buy rather than build here, Tom? Yeah, I think that's what this is, because like you said, they've already done the math. And uh, so did Google. And Google realized, well, it'll cost us X to build this out and to make it work right. Or we can spend, I don't know, 80% of X and buy a company that's already done it. Mm -hmm. Well, this is cheaper than this, so let's do it. Um, you know, a lot of people are really excited about Elastifile's technology. We've seen that. Um, there's some great coverage at Storage Field Day about what they're doing. Uh, the, when the news broke yesterday, a lot of people who are Tech Field Day delegates, Storage Field Day uh, delegates, were praising the news because this actually gives Google a leg up in the cloud. Um, because, you know, like you said, distributed storage, um, when you're when you're going up against the S3 monstrosity that is Amazon, you got to have a way to compete. And I think that this is a huge differentiator for them. Any chance that this, you know, they've, they've really been going in, they rolled in uh, Chronicle uh, from Alphabet, they uh, recently had acquired, I 
it, the name is escaping right now, but for a couple billion dollars, I picked up some other analytics assets. Now they're buying Elastifile. Mm-hmm. Is there any chance that going on this this buying tear right now has a little bit of a chilling effect with partners wanting to be on their platform, given that, you know, they buy something, all of a sudden it's the mandated, you know, uh, state-ordained distributed storage solution like they would be doing here with Elastifile or Filestore, long-term having some impacts uh, on, you know, uh, their cloud viability? Oh, yeah, it absolutely will. It's what happens every time you deal with a situation like this. Um, There's actually a term for it. Apple invented the term Sherlock. (laughs) What happens whenever you build an app for an ecosystem and next year your ecosystem builds the same app into your system? Well, uh, in the words of Marco Arment, well, I can't repeat that word on YouTube, but let's just say it's four <laughs> letters and starts with S. Um, no, this is exactly what happens because y- you you tell your partners, build things for us. And then you go out and you buy one of your partners. And now the rest of them are looking around going, wait a minute, this isn't right. Um, I don't think this is going to hurt them long term, but I think it will hurt the smaller partners who can't recover from this. You know, let's just go out on a limb here. Companies like Elastifile. We do one thing really well. And if now Google does that thing even better than we do because they bought our competitor, uh, I'm going to take my ball and go to Oracle Cloud, maybe. Uncle Larry, I'm coming home. (laughs) Go to my much smaller court with Oracle Cloud. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of uh, small courts, a survey of global 2000 CIOs about the adoption of team messaging platforms, specifically uh, the big ones there being Slack and Microsoft Teams. Uh, The survey showed that in the past year, organizations had had uh, planned to adopt teams. uh, The the percentage of organizations that had planned or had adopted teams increased from 44% to 59%. So, you know, kind of a big deal going over that 50% threshold. While interest in Slack did increase, but at a slower rate from 28% to 35%. So again, that's either had or planned to implement. Uh, This survey found that 16% of large organizations plan to decrease their spend on Slack versus just 2% on Microsoft Teams. That last number, though, I I feel like there was not any context. I got this from a recode piece, and they were being pretty bullish on Microsoft Teams. The one thing I will say there is... A large part of that is because Microsoft Teams is tied to Office 365 spending. So if you're not planning on decreasing your Office 365, you're not planning to decrease your Microsoft Teams. Still a bad number for Slack, though. Um, Looking at this, uh, like I said, further from this Recode article, uh, it kind of compared what Microsoft is doing with Teams to what Instagram did with uh, Snapchat, basically going in, duplicating features, offering something on a larger platform, and really limiting the growth of that. Do you think that's the case here, given that these are both paid services? You know, there's a little more friction for switching between these. Or, you know, is that uh, is, is um, Slack getting Insta- or getting Snapchatted, I guess, if we're going to phrase more terminology? I'm waiting for a MySpace reference. <laughs> um, no, it, what, this, this is the thing, because this is actually kind of how Microsoft um, brought Azure to dominance as well. Um, they looked at what people are buying from Microsoft Office, and they said, hey – we own a thing that integrates with Office that duplicates a lot of the functionality of this other thing, in this case, Slack. Why are we telling people about this? And, and someone at Microsoft woke up and said, I don't know. Let's let's tell people about this. <laughs> Is that Here's simple? the thing. The pe- yeah, it, it, well, simple. Um, Teams works really well for people who need what Teams does. And and uh, Scott Lowe from Actual Tech Media, who's a tech builder delegate, um, has extolled the virtues of Teams. But he's also been very specific. It works really well if what you need is integration with Microsoft Office, integration with SharePoint, integration with Microsoft in general. 
And that's great if that's what you want. But a lot of people use other services. They use Google Apps. They use Trello. They use Asana. They use pretty much things that Microsoft is not 100% in on yet. So Slack has flexibility. Teams has vertical integration. So if you're in the Microsoft camp, Teams is the best way to go. Now, that also kind of ties back to that number that you said. A lot of people look at Slack decide it kind of works for them. And then maybe a year from now, they decide maybe it doesn't. And so they're looking to move to a different thing. I would bet that the people who are currently looking at Teams aren't really disinterested in it because they still haven't figured out how to integrate it yet. You know, it's like, you know, uh, when I install a whole bunch of apps on my phone, if you ask me, well, are you looking to delete them yet? The answer is no, not because I haven't found out whether or not they work for me or not. I haven't looked at them yet. I haven't really explored them. So that's where they're at with Teams. I think ultimately what you're going to find, though, is that Teams is going to do a few things really well and a few things not really well. Slack is going to do a few different things really well and probably a whole bunch of other things not so well. Um, and the other thing, too, is, is that when, uh, you know, when they finally release laptops that can have 128 gigs of RAM so I can have two Slack windows open at the same time, <laughs> um, that's going to be really helpful in order for me to be able to completely evaluate things. I don't think that Teams is going to grow much beyond where it's at right now without a lot of help from Microsoft on the integration piece on the back end. I think you're going to start to see Slack's adoption numbers shrink a little bit, but that's not because Microsoft Teams is stealing Slack's users. I think it's people finding ways to do things without Slack. Yeah, I think the the risk of messaging fatigue is very real in, in terms of, you know, okay, yes, this is better than email. That doesn't mean it's the best way to do something. And you said things like Asana and that kind of stuff as, you know, as, as other ways to go about either task management or, or organizing your team communication, that kind of stuff. What I think would be very interesting if down the road um, Microsoft does what they did with OneNote and kind of open up the floodgates and go, hey, here's this free tier. Like to me, that's when they're really putting the screws to Slack because that's always, you know, the 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 arrow that they have in their quiver that Microsoft isn't willing or unable to match is it's it's pretty much a two minute process to get started doing using Slack because you can just sign up, throw some invites out there. Yeah, you don't have any messaging, you know, you don't have that extensive messaging history, you don't have that much storage, but I feel like for the vast majority of people, that's really not an issue. So I, I think when you see that now, Tom, do you think that Slack's numbers will decrease or that their growth will flatten over the next year or two? No, I'm almost positive growth will flatten in the next twelve months. Okay. People who are using Slack are already using it. I think the numbers will actually decrease in the next 24 months. Um, people will start finding workflows that don't work for Slack, and they'll abandon the platform. I, you know, and to your, you know, uh, you joked about having 128 gigs of uh, of RAM, but I also think that maybe some of it is that the app experience, like Microsoft knows how to make. You know, not that Office is a light app in any sense of the way. Any of the Office apps are light in any sense of the word, but they're a lot more efficient than those Electron apps that Slack seems to really, really love. Uh, and finally here, uh, I wanted to finish up with on this. Now, Tom, I don't know if you're a fan of a 7-Eleven, um, but it turns out that maybe you shouldn't trust them with the security when you're designing your app. A security flaw in the 7-Eleven Japan 7Pay mobile payment app resulted in roughly 900 people losing about 55 million yen since launching on July 1st. This was caused by poorly implemented password reset feature, which allowed anyone to request password resets on accounts and have that reset link sent to an email address not already linked to that account. <laughs> Just think about that for one moment. Uh, requesting a reset required only an email address, a date of birth, 
and a phone number. Uh, and users who did not uh, put in a birthday when they set up their accounts had it defaulted to January 1st, 2019. So all the good security practices were on display here. Uh, 7-Eleven Japan shut down the service on July 3rd and promised to compensate all users who had been affected by it. Tom, shocking here that 7-Eleven isn't a great app developer. Shocking that they didn't find a way to integrate Slurpees into the security <laughs> questions. Um, th th this is the thing. Let let's be fair. It's 2019, right? We've we've been doing internet stuff for what almost 30 years now. These are basics, guys. If okay, uh, 7-Eleven, my advice: next time you want to have this app work, um, give it to a whole bunch of 14-year-old gamers and just tell them to try to break it. Because I promise you, if there's an exploit to be found, they're going to find it, especially if it involves screwing with other people. Um, I love this because I have a 14-year-old gamer in the house. <laughs> um, but, but the thing is, these are very simple exploits. I'm sorry. You should know this. There are better ways to authenticate this. I mean, your bank, 7-Eleven people, your bank has better security questions than that. And a real security person, like the people we invite to things like Security Field Day, would tell you, don't answer those questions legitimately. You know what my mother's maiden name is? Purple Monkey Dishwasher. You know why? Because I'm in security. <laughs> also, she was a bit of a flower child. Um, but the thing is, you you can't make this simple. And you definitely can't allow these kinds of, of unchecked um, password resets. I mean, look at Apple. Apple got burned on iCloud resets because you can fake that. You can you can have the before they had two factor authentication. It was actually not that hard to reset an iCloud password. And then you know you look at the number of ways that you can uh, socially engineer information out of people. Like you know, what's your first pet's name? Where do you live? What's your birthday? These are all things that exist on the internet. So either pick better security questions or answer them dishonestly in a way that you know makes sense so that nobody can figure out how to reset your password. Yeah, I mean, that's basically a, a, like a Facebook search away from finding anyone's mm -hmm. birthday and an email address. I mean, that's that's virtually no barrier there. And this would be one thing if this was 7-Eleven in 1999 that decided, hey, mm -hmm. we're going to do this crazy, you know, uh, internet payment thing and no one, you know, no one kind of gets it. I mean, but you have companies like Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, any number of these that have figured this out. That That's like a mainstay of mobile payments. Uh, or these, This was kind of a QR, or a QR code or a barcode based scanner where you put funds into an account, you bring up the app, you mm -hmm. scan a barcode and it processes that payment, not something NFC like Apple Pay or Google Pay or something like that. Um, so this is like an established, like we, we should have figured this out by now. Like Starbucks has been doing this for 10 years or something like that since basically smartphones have been around. So I don't know what developer they farmed this out to. Maybe it was like the CEO's cousin or something like that. But yikes, that is just... I can't even say that. It's not even like this is like we found this SQL injection that makes it super easy if you know what you're doing in the code. Like this is the most basic of human engineering uh, would defeat this. Look out on the bright side. Finding this only cost them 55 million yen. It could have been a whole lot worse. It could have been. Uh, you could have had um, Tom from MySpace uh, hack it. Uh, and that one's for you, Scott Lester. Thanks for watching. Uh, but that will just about do it for the Gestalt IT Rundown for this week. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time running down the IT news of the week that matters to you. Uh, if you want to, you can subscribe. We have a podcast feed for the show. So uh, go over to your podcatcher of choice and just search for the Gestalt IT Rundown. You can find us on YouTube, on Facebook as you are watching it live right now. Uh, but uh, Tom, where can people find more of your stuff if they are so inclined? 
Well, if they want to check out some of the things I tweet about, that's Networking Nerd on Twitter. If you want to follow my blog, networkingnerd.net. Also check out gestaltit.com. I've gotten a lot of great pieces coming out uh, related to Cisco Live and Security Field Day. And we've got some more exciting things coming up in just a couple of weeks with uh, 128 Technology. So you definitely want to check out what we've got going on over there. You can find my writing at gestaltit.com as well or on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. Uh, That will just about do it for us. So until the next time we meet, remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day. (laughs) 